Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's murder most foul, the attempted murder of Imran Khan and his good wife in Pakistan. 16 years in prison for Imran Khan. 16 years. 10 years for his good wife, a 10-year ban on political activity and public office, an unpayable, undreamt-of fine. It is an attempt to put the rightful Prime Minister of Pakistan out of the game. But will it succeed? That is a very open question, because the reports I have from Pakistan are that Imran Khan without an emblem, with his candidates locked up, with the leader locked up, may still win the Pakistan elections. Imagine that. It's murder most foul in Gaza, in Jerusalem, and in the West Bank. Famine has broken out across the Gaza Strip. The Palestinians are eating grass. And food is now completely non-existent in the southern city of Khan Yunus, the city that Israel said everyone should flee to so that they could ethnically cleanse the northern part of the Gaza Strip. And the politicians in Britain, at least, are in meltdown over the backlash amongst voters at their murder most foul. We've got a great panel tonight, including the one and only Scott Ritter. So stay tuned. It's the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Full disclosure, Imran Khan has been a personal friend of mine for more than 20 years. I was never, nonetheless, his party man, traveling as I did for 30 years with the late Benazir Bhutto. But I have always loved and admired him, not least his stance against war, against imperial domination, which is, of course, the reason he's now behind bars and the reason he was deposed in a U.S.-backed, military-executed coup d'etat, which removed the most popular Pakistani leader by a country mile and then began the witch hunt of his supporters and his party men his members of the National Assembly, members of the Provincial Assembly, the wives and daughters and sisters and mothers of Imran Khan's friends have been ruthlessly witch-hunted, imprisoned, beaten and starved. Some of them have been disappeared only to turn up as corpses in foreign lands. It is not just a crime against Imran Khan, and his good wife now, who joins him behind bars today, about a crime against democracy in Pakistan. And that's something I've always been in favor of. As many of you know, I hold the two highest civil awards in Pakistan, the Halali Qadi Azam 
and the Helali Pakistan, the first for my contribution to the restoration of democracy in Pakistan in the 1970s and 80s, and the second for my work for the freedom and self-determination of the people of Kashmir. Those two highest civil awards were given to me because of my love of democracy in Pakistan, and I will never relinquish that love. And that places me this evening as Imran Khan's party man, albeit my long history with the People's Party of Pakistan, because all of the other parties have conspired with the United States and the military top brass to try and murder democracy, to try and kill Imran Khan's political career. But as I said in the introduction, there are astonishing signs, unless they rig the actual count. Also, that Imran Khan's party, whose emblem has been taken off the ballot paper and whose candidates were subjected to brutal repression to try and get them not to place their names on the ballot paper in the first place, may yet triumph in the upcoming Pakistan parliamentary elections early next month. We'll keep you abreast of that. The biggest story, of course, remains the war, famine, pestilence and disease, which is still rampaging the four horsemen of the apocalypse through the Palestinian territory of Gaza, but also increasingly in the shape of hundreds of dead people since October 7th. The Palestinian West Bank, which is ruled by the political opponents of Hamas, just in case you're one of the remaining fools who think this conflict began on October 7th and that this conflict is about Hamas. Let me start with something that happened in the West Bank city of Jenin this very week. Like a mafia hit job, Israeli special forces dressed as Arabs and dressed as medical personnel, white coats, stethoscopes, wheelchairs, and fake babies in carry cots uh, uh, included, entered a hospital in Janine and shot to death a quadriplegic patient who had been in hospital for months and two others at his bedside in a hospital dressed as doctors and dressed as Palestinian Arabs. It is something that the mafia, like the Godfather movies, uh, could easily have presented as fiction. This was fact. Now, you'll recall that the Palestinians were accused of using hospitals, using hospitals as a base for the resistance, which then justified the destruction and partial destruction of every single hospital in the Gaza Strip. What then is people posing as doctors and murdering patients in their beds, but an act of international terrorism? I have no qualm at all about declaring Israel a gangster terrorist state, and they proved it all over again with their terrorist attack on a quadriplegic patient, shooting him to death. I could talk about the little girl, Hind, still missing, 
after being trapped in a car, whilst all, all of her family were murdered in that car. The little girl of four or five years old, the only survivor. But has she survived? The Palestine Red Crescent Society is still searching for her. The car in which she was traveling with her mother, her father, her sisters, the car is still there in full view in Gaza in a street filled with Israeli tanks. And Israel will not habeas corpus, will not produce the little girl Hind. I could talk about dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of atrocities that are taking place right now across the Palestinian territories. But I'd rather talk about the atrocities we ourselves are committing here in Britain, there in the United States, and in a small but influential group of countries, almost all of them European colonialist countries. The savage decision to withdraw funding from the UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, in the 24-hour period after the decision of the International Court of Justice in The Hague, about which I spoke on Sunday, has gathered pace since Sunday. Like an episode of Strictly Come Dancing, perfectly choreographed, the Israelis, the Israeli media, that trustworthy organ, the Israeli press, released an allegation, an allegation only, without evidence, that 12 members of the 13,000 members of UNRWA staff in Gaza had been involved in the operation on October 7th. Without waiting for UNRWA's investigation, without asking for a single scintilla of evidence in a two and a half hour period, virtually all of these Western countries cut off all the aid to the UNRWA and not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank, in Lebanon, in the refugee camps in Jordan and elsewhere. This was, as I said on Sunday, the equivalent of pooling the complete funding of the National Health Service because Dr. Harold Shipman, a general practitioner in the NHS, had been found to be a murderer. No one would countenance such an act. But this act was very obviously decided upon in order to divert attention from the guilty verdict in The Hague. And it worked perfectly. Suddenly, it was as if the verdict of the ICJ 15 to 1, 16 to 2 judges, overwhelming landslide majority in the court as if it never happened. In fact, the Western allies of Israel have doubled down on their support for the genocide in Gaza, having effectively left themselves open to prosecution if they continued to support a plausible finding by the court of genocide, a decision of the court to give Israel one month to cease and desist those practices which plausibly constituted genocide, 
we have now added to our collaboration in this great crime, the crime of pooling the funding on which the entire Palestinian refugee population entirely depends. Not just for food, but for medicine, but for school and all the other services that the UNRWA provided. And thus we have made ourselves doubly culpable in an act of genocide. And almost in every case, with government and opposition in the Western countries concerned, in lockstep. A merger. There is a cross-party merger when it comes to the killing of Palestinians. In the United States, the Democrats and the Republicans rejected the ICJ finding of genocide and backed the cutting, complete cutting, of the UNRWA funding. In the United Kingdom, exactly the same. But they did not count on one thing, that eventually the last straw breaks the camel's back. And there are real signs that that has begun to happen. Just in the last few days, in the last few hours, there is a revolt going on in Britain. Yes, centered on uh, heavily Muslim-populated cities in, the, in London, in the northwest of England, in parts of Yorkshire, a revolt, an uprising is going on, a peaceful uprising is going on. As people say this far, no further. Up with this, we will not put. You have to change your tune now or you can forget about us ever voting for you again. And I'm a witness to that in real time. I have come to the studio this evening from Rochdale, where there's a parliamentary by-election on the 29th of February, where Labour, which completely rules and dominates the town and has dirtied the town clock in so many ways over so many years, is now in a situation of electoral, political paralysis and fear, unable to go out, unable to canvas for people slamming the door in their face and videotaping themselves doing so through their doorbell cameras. People saying that Labour should get off the Rochdale streets. People in Croydon, in London, cancelling campaign launches. People like David Lammy, unable to go to scheduled events because of this uprising amongst people who've had enough of the sickening spectacle of massacre and genocide. Genocide is not an ordinary word. It's not an ordinary thing. It is beyond massacre. It is beyond war. It is the attempt literally to wipe out, to annihilate, to extirpate an entire population. And thanks to these, everyone has watched it happening in real time. It doesn't matter that it wasn't on the TV. It doesn't matter that it isn't in the newspapers because fewer and fewer people expect the truth from the TV or from the newspapers. More and more people, and the younger they are, the more likely they are to get their news in real time 
on their telephone, on social media, and everyone has seen the slaughtered children. Everyone has seen the caesarean sections performed on women without anesthetic. They saw a baby born today from a dead mother by caesarean section. They've seen the dogs and the cats eating the corpses of Palestinian bodies that cannot be recovered from the rubble. Everyone has seen it. And surprise, surprise, the politicians who have supported it have suddenly woken up to the fact that many of their voters are disgusted, repulsed by it, and are no longer prepared to vote for the people who have facilitated the genocide. That's the truth of it. Now, if you want my honest opinion, you know my view of uh, the lesser of two evils. I don't believe that Joe Biden was the lesser of two evils. And I certainly don't believe that Sir Keir Starmer, the so-called leader of the so-called Labour Party, is the lesser of two evils between him and the inky-fingered clerk of empire, Rishi Sunak. Keir Starmer's the more evil of the two because, as Malcolm told us, more than 50 years ago, almost 60 years ago, the wolf, we know what the wolf intends, but the fox looks like he's smiling as he comes towards you with exactly the same intent. Wolf in sheep's clothing, that's Keir Starmer. A wolf in sheep's clothing who's supposed to be a queen's counsel, a king's counsel, a human rights lawyer who declared on national radio that Israel had the right to cut off the water and the electricity from 2.3 million people in Gaza who refused to call for a ceasefire, who repeatedly stated that a ceasefire would benefit only Hamas. And he dragooned most of his members of parliament, most of his candidates. Check their Twitter feeds, if you don't believe me, into supporting him. 50 Labour MPs did call for an immediate ceasefire and fair play to them. Seven of them had to resign from the Labour front bench in order to do so because they would otherwise have been sacked. Nothing can change these facts. No amount of polling or initiatives or soft soap can change these facts that Labour, Lamy, Starmer, Nandy, and the other gang of cutthroats at the head of the British Labour Party have facilitated this catastrophe and even supported the cut to the grant to UNRWA at the risk of starving 2.3 million people to death. Collective punishment, so brazen, so obvious that you wouldn't need to be a king's counsel successfully to prosecute it in court. So I'm here to tell you that the Labour Party is crumbling in front of our eyes. And their members, their activists, their representatives know it. 
So look out for people jumping ship over these next days and weeks. Look out for a refinement of the language here and there. And don't forget the guilt of this so-called Labour Party in this great crime against the people of Palestine. It's going to be the mother of all talk shows, so I suggest you fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night, not least because the one and the only Scott Ritter is up right after this. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, don't forget that from next Wednesday, that's next Wednesday, the time of the Wednesday show moves from 9 p.m. to 7 p.m. So it will be the same time as the Sunday show. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, 7 p.m. UK time. So brace for it. There's nobody knows more about war and increasingly about international politics than the one and only Scott Ritter, former Marine Corps intelligence officer and a former chief weapons inspector for the United States in the uh, Iraq conflict, a man that I first met when we tried to stop the Iraq war. I'm glad to say he's been trying to stop every war ever since. Scott Ritter, uh, welcome to the show. We've, I don't know which war to start with, Scott, uh, there are so many. Uh, let's start with the subject of our poll, if we may. Uh, will Biden attack Iran? Uh, there were siren voices, the usual, Linda Graham and so on, calling for him to do so. Uh, and he looked as if for a moment he was going to do so. Has he drawn back? Have wiser counsel uh, prevailed? I believe the answer to that question is yes. Um, look, we just go back uh, just a few years ago before Biden became president during the presidency of Donald Trump. The Iranians shot down an American drone, the Global Hawk. Um, and Trump was advocating for a retaliatory strike against the air defense facilities in Iran on Iranian soil, which is reasonable. It's not an unreasonable uh, action. Uh, but the Pentagon said, whoa, hold on, boss. If you strike Iran, on Iranian soil, they're going to retaliate everywhere, and it's going to begin a pattern of escalation that will lead to a general war that we're not prepared to fight right now, 
And frankly speaking, even if we took the months or years it took to get ready to fight, we can't guarantee victory. We, we can't tell you we're going to win this one. And Trump backed down. That same professional military council, of course, doesn't change with the new administration. It still exists. And I believe that Iran's case for being able to, A, withstand an American attack and B, inflict significant harm on American assets in the region has only increased since that time. The military professionals know this, and I believe that they have counseled Joe Biden accordingly. I don't believe we're going to attack Iran. The proximate reason for the uh, attack that hasn't yet occurred uh, was a strike on an American outpost, uh, an outpost of an illegal base uh, in Syria, for which there is no authority, uh, no international legal authority, and a complete refusal to grant authority by the sovereign government of Syria. What were the Americans doing there, and who do you think struck them? Well, you're absolutely right, first of all, to talk about the importance of differentiating between the American claim that these uh, service members were at Tower 22, which is an adjunct to a larger Area 55 or Al-Tamf garrison that's in Syria. Um, because we can't admit that if we were on Syrian soil, understand that um, nations that are illegally occupying territory have no inherent right of self-defense against those of whose territory they're illegally occupying. So the United States has made a false claim that uh, we were on Jordanian soil. The Jordanian government, of course, said, no, that's not the case. Um, the, the purpose of the American military presence there, and it's actually a coalition military presence. We have, uh, I think, some Norwegian troops, and on occasion we rotate in other uh, NATO or European troops, um, is the anti-Islamic state or anti-ISIS mission. Um, but the United States itself acknowledges, the Pentagon acknowledges that Al-Tamf is not involved in that anymore, uh, that that has pretty much died down. What Al-Tamf does is provide training to local Syrian tribal elements, tribes, ironically, which had previously been loyal to ISIS, but are now working on behalf of the United States to destabilize the regime of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. So we are literally a terrorist operation on Syrian soil. And the people opposing us are the militias in Syria and Iraq who are against this ongoing illegal uh, American presence on their soil and have opted to strike against America as a sign of protest over America's support of Israel's actions in Gaza. So they were struck by militias, some of which have been armed by Iran. Um, now, I find it hypocritical and indeed somewhat ironic uh, that Joe Biden says that the reason why we're after Iran is that they have provided weapons to these militias that they've used to strike Americans. Well, wait a minute, Joe, don't you provide $100 billion worth of weapons to the Ukrainians and have the, and, and sit back and allow them to use those weapons to kill Russians? Um, are you thereby saying that because Iran did this, we have a, strike, a right to strike Iran, that Russia has a strike right to strike America? I mean, there's no consistency in the American argument. It's the, it's the argument of a nation that's in panic. Joe Biden knows that he can't do anything against Iran. He also knows, and he's admitted it about the Houthi, that we can't deter the Houthi from continuing to do their operations to shut down maritime traffic in the in the Red Sea. All the military strikes we've done have been to no avail. 
whatever we do in response to what is a tragedy for the American soldiers involved, the death of three American soldiers, the wounding of dozens of others, um, whatever we do in response is not going to end this tragedy. It's all it's going to do is perpetuate a cycle of violence guaranteeing that more American soldiers are going to die, more Iraqis are going to die, more Syrians are going to die, more Palestinians are going to die. And that's the crux of the problem. This could all be ended today if Joe Biden would pick up the phone and tell Bibi Netanyahu to stand down. But we won't do that. We'll come to that. Uh, before we do, though, uh, let's look at the other dog that didn't bark, the other shoe that didn't fall. Uh, this week, uh, we were told in what was clearly a psyop uh, that uh, Israel was imminently about to invade in a ground invasion uh, southern Lebanon and try to drive the Lebanese resistance uh, back beyond the Latani River, which they've been trying to do actually uh, as long as I've been involved in this. And that goes back 50 years. Uh, the Latani River has is fixed in my mind as the place that Israel kind of believes is its border uh, with Lebanon. But it never happened. Uh, the Israelis did not invade Lebanon. Are they going to? Well, I'm, I'm loath to try and give you an absolute uh, statement of uh, you know assurance that they won't. But I'm telling you right now that they won't. And I'll tell you why they won't because they will get destroyed by Hezbollah. Uh, Hezbollah learned a lesson in 2006, by the way, a conflict that Hezbollah won. Um, Israel did not defeat Hezbollah in 2006, nor did Israel defeat Hezbollah when Hezbollah drove Israel out of southern Lebanon uh, in, in, in 2000. So, you know, Hezbollah is 2-0 and o against Israel. Uh, Hezbollah also learned something about the 2006 conflict, and that is that Israel took the fight to Lebanese soil. And Israel inflicted horrific harm on the, you know, the city of Beirut, on Lebanese villages in southern Lebanon. And Hezbollah made a determination that if there's going to be a fight with Israel in the future, that that fight won't be exclusively on Lebanese soil. That Hezbollah is going to take the fight to Israel. And Hezbollah has been training and preparing for this. What I can guarantee you is two things. One, that Israel will never reach the Latani River. Uh, they will be allowed to penetrate into southern Lebanon to a certain depth, at which point they'll be stopped by pre-planned Hezbollah defenses and then find themselves trapped as over 10,000 Hezbollah fighters appear on the soil of Israel and will capture northern Israel, seize the Galilee, isolate the Golan, and there's nothing Israel can do to stop this. Nothing. The Israeli military knows this. The Israeli government knows this. The United States knows this. That's why I believe that Israel will never attack Lebanon uh, and never initiate this so-called Litani offensive because it's a literal act of suicide. Let's go to the big enchilada then. You identified it as such a minute or two ago. Uh, the conflict in Gaza. Uh, there are reports that Egypt and Qatar uh, are brokering a 45-day ceasefire, big exchange of uh, prisoners, uh, and uh, a big, uh, a big um, influx of humanitarian aid. But Netanyahu has completely denied this, and he's saying that the war will continue. Wh which, which is right? 
Well, as long as Netanyahu's in power, Netanyahu's right. He's he's correct. It doesn't mean that there aren't discussions taking place. I'm sure that there are discussions pay, taking place. But let's go back and review the statements made, made by Netanyahu since October 7th. A ceasefire or a prolonged pause, um, Netanyahu says, represents a defeat for Israel. Um, an exchange of prisoners is what Hamas wanted all along. That's a defeat for Israel. And to provide humanitarian goods uh, to the people of Gaza reverses the genocidal policies that Israel has been embarked on since the beginning of this operation, policies designed to uh, evict the Palestinian population from Gaza. This would be a defeat for Netanyahu. Netanyahu right now is struggling not only for his political survival, but frankly his survival as a free man because you know, he lost his gambit to take control of uh, Israeli courts. The Israeli Supreme Court has said that his modifications of basic law will not stand, which means that once he leaves office, he will be held accountable in the court of justice for his many crimes of corruption, he and his wife. And they will probably be found guilty and spend the rest of their lives in jail. He doesn't want this. He is desperate for some sort of miracle to occur that isn't going to occur. The Israeli Defense Force was fought to a standstill in Gaza by Hamas, something I predicted would happen with absolute certainty. Uh, Israel has acknowledged that they at best have accounted for 20% of Hamas's tunnel network, uh, but they don't know the extent. They say it's larger than we thought. Um, Israel never took control of northern Gaza. Israel never took control of southern Gaza. Israel is withdrawing its forces because they can't afford to stay in Gaza because the losses are too high. This is a victory for Hamas, a military victory for Hamas, and it's also a political victory for Hamas. Remember, uh, Netanyahu said that we will eradicate Hamas as a political movement. Hamas has become more strong and more legitimate since October 7th. If there were free and fair elections amongst the Palestinian people, not only in Gaza, but on the West Bank today, Hamas would win. They would win the presidency. They would win the legislative body. Um, the international community has rallied behind the cause of the Palestinian people. And the cause of the Palestinian people is on the front pages only because of Hamas. So Hamas has emerged stronger as a political movement today than ever before. This is a defeat for Israel. And then there's the economic aspect. Benjamin Netanyahu has been defeated militarily, politically, and Israel is being crushed economically. The consequences of this war are weighing hard on the Israeli economy. The actions of the Houthi in shutting down uh, maritime traffic in the Red Sea is destroying the economy of southern Israel. The port of Elliot is empty of shipping. Um, Netanyahu is a man who failed the Israeli people on October 7th, and he's failed the Israeli people ever since. And yet he's not man enough to acknowledge that he should step aside. He is putting the security of Israel, the well-being of Israel, not, and, 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 and of course, the well-being of Palestinian people, but he doesn't care about them. But he ostensibly cares about the people of Israel. He is risking them for his own narcissistic love affair with his notion that he is somehow the savior of Israel. No, no, no. He is evil personified. He is Satan in flesh. He is the worst thing that has happened to Israel in its modern history and until he is removed from power, I don't believe there's going to be a ceasefire or any of the measures that could lead to a resolution of the conflict in Gaza. Now, I told you there were so many wars, uh, we'd have difficulty covering them all in the 
time available. And so finally, uh, in the Ukraine, uh, Zelensky tried to remove Zaluzhny, the chief of the army staff, but that appears to have uh, been aborted. There was a backlash. Uh, and uh, it's always difficult to try and remove the chief of the army staff in the middle of a war. And if you try and fail, that places the politicians in some jeopardy, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, what we're looking at here is a clear example of the uh, absolute chaos that uh, that exists inside Ukrainian politics today. Um, and at the center of this is what to do about the defeat that Russia has inflicted on the Ukrainian army. The Ukrainian army is in desperate situations, desperate straits. Um, they, they run out of money. The United States is no longer providing them with arms, equipment, or financing. Europe's uh, pipeline has slowed down, dried to a trickle or nothing. Um, and yet Russia is getting stronger. And so the, the question is, what does, what does Ukraine do? Zelensky has been confronted by the military with their requirements for dramatic mobilization. The Zeluzhny says, I need 500,000 men and I need them right now to fill the gaps. Zelensky says, wait a minute, if you get them, one, uh, it's going to be very traumatic to get this. We'll have to rewrite laws and things. Two, how are you going to train them? How are you going to equip them? You'll just be sending them to the front line to die like we already have. This isn't the right step. We need to find another way. But Zeluzhny recognizes that um, there is no other way, that Ukraine is on its last legs. So Zelensky confronted Zeluzhny, uh, couldn't get Zeluzhny to agree with him, threatened to fire him. Zeluzhny stood up to him. The entire Ukrainian military command backed Zeluzhny. When the commander-in-chief, who's ostensibly supposed to be in charge of everything, is told by his collective military that we have no faith in your leadership. We have no faith in your judgments. Well, George, it's over. It's all over but the shouting. And I wouldn't be surprised if sometime in the not-so-distant future, some of the things that we've talked about previously occur. And that is that Zelensky will be removed from power by the Ukrainian military because they recognize that he is the cause for much of the problems that they face today. As always, the inimitable Scott Ritter, thank you for your wisdom and your predictions, which, along with mine, have proved uncannily accurate so far. Thanks very much for joining us, Scott Ritter. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, Minar Adli is the founder, director of one of the best journalistic outfits in the world. Everyone should follow their work. They're called Mint Press News, and they have some of the finest writers, some of the best analysts. 
on their uh, books. Minar joins us now. Uh, Minar, let me uh, start, if I may, uh, with the situation of journalists. You yourselves, uh, as Mint Press, have suffered all kinds of algorithmic suppression, uh, um, no platforming, shadow banning, outright banning, and so on, as indeed, to some extent, has the mother of all talk shows. But the number of journalists who have been actually literally killed in uh, the Gaza conflict in the West Bank and indeed in southern Lebanon is now well into triple figures just since October 7. Uh, What's the purpose behind Israel's attempt to annihilate journalists in Palestine? Well, I think you said it very clearly and uh, uh, correctly, which is Israel is trying to annihilate uh, the truth tellers who are giving the world a different perspective about what's happening in, in Gaza. Israel doesn't want the world to see the reality of its genocidal onslaught in Gaza. So it's assassinating the messengers one by one. Uh, literally. And this is not just an attack against Palestinians, but an attack against everything democracy stands for. And the United States is handing Israel the very weapons to commit these uh, crimes against humanity. And we have to remember that the United States uh, preaches to the world about democracy and about human rights. Um, In most parts of the world, wearing a flak jacket marked press gives you protection. But right now in Gaza, it may as well be a target as Israel has turned Gaza um, into what the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs has called a cemetery for journalists. And you'd think by now, mainstream corporate journalists in the West would talk about the targeting of journalists in Gaza, but they're not. If legacy media outlets like the New York Times or CNN cover journalists being killed in Gaza, they don't even have the basic journalistic integrity to say who killed them and completely fail to point out that Israel is systematically targeting them. Israel has now killed more journalists in Gaza in two months than the U.S. killed in 20 years of war in Vietnam. Israel has already killed at least 110 journalists in Gaza since October 7th, and they're targeting and exterminating them, as you pointed out, uh, for narrative control. Israel is, uh, as as you've uh, said, is losing the information war globally. Humanity is siding with Palestinians and their plight for freedom and an end to the genocide, an end to the illegal occupation, an end to the apartheid system. They're demanding their politicians uh, call for a ceasefire. And we're actually seeing um, journalists like Mu'taz Azaiza, who has recently been evacuated, but he has amassed more followers, you know, 18.7 million followers on Instagram than subscribers to the New York Times. And that just goes to show that people are really sick and tired of mainstream corporate propaganda, which continuously beats the drums of war and whitewashes Israeli crimes. And so they're turning to these independent journalists in Gaza. And so Israel knows this, and that's why Israel is assassinating them one by one. And often their whole families, uh, too, uh, assassinating them in their houses and and uh, killing their yes. families uh, along with them. And Motaz has had to uh, flee the country, while from Al Jazeera has had to flee the country for a medical uh, treatment. 
uh, these are heroes of our time. I spoke with a young girl today in Rochdale, a 16-year-old girl for whom Mortaz is, is, is Che Guevara. He's the hero uh, of the hour. She's one of the 18.7 million who follow him on Instagram. It is extraordinary how often Israel struggles to lift a huge stone, kills so many people, only to drop that stone on their own feet. Uh, Israel has lost ground as a result of this uh, annihilation policy towards journalists. Their narrative control is now worse than it was before they did it. And of course, uh, they did it long before October 7, poor Shireen Abu Akleh uh, in, in the West Bank. Again, uh, Al Jazeera, an American citizen, uh, a Christian, Palestinian woman. Uh, they even attacked her funeral. Uh, it's blind fury, isn't it? It is. And we have to remember that just a couple of weeks ago, Israel targeted Wa'el Dahdouh before he was evacuated. And they killed his cameraman and they prevented ambulances from reaching him. And they basically just allowed him to bleed to death. And all of these crimes are being broadcasted live um, on our smartphones for the whole world to watch. It's like watching a horror movie take place, but it's not. It's the daily life of Palestinians. And Israel is continuously destroying its own fake image that it is a beacon of democracy in the Middle East and exposing itself as a murderous occupying uh, military force. And you'd think that when they murdered uh, Shirin Abu Akleh on live TV, that that would have been enough to have woken these so-called Western leaders to say enough is enough. She's an American citizen. Um, and yet they did it. And then Israel went again to attack. The Israeli military went to attack um, her funeral. And so it's like Israel's just giving a, given a blank check to commit crime after crime. And I guess only time will tell if anything will come out of these ICJ um, court findings. Yes, uh, indeed. And of course, uh, we here in Britain are holding the world's most important journalist in a dungeon, uh, Julian Assange, and uh, the United States is desperate to get hold of him so they can bury him uh, in a supermax so that we never hear another word from him. Uh, all their protestations about freedom and First Amendments and uh, rights and democracy they're all utterly hollow now, aren't they? They are. And, you know, if we want to look at um, organizations like the New York Times, and I, I don't mean to take a jab at the New York Times, but I definitely want to talk about how the New York Times has a very close relationship to the state of Israel. And the New York Times is a Western corporate media outlet that purports to represent the interests of democracy and freedom of speech and our First Amendment. Um, and yet we have to remember that we don't have a mainstream corporate media anymore. We have an extremist media um, beating the drums of war. So many of the so-called respected legacy media outlets are run by and are employed by people who have direct ties to the state of Israel. And by the way, the New York Times was one of the many media outlets that didn't come out to defend Julian Assange when he was being imprisoned um, in uh, the UK Belmarsh prison. So they're not gonna be uh, first in line to defend Palestinian journalists who are being targeted and assassinated. So um, the New York Times has direct ties to the state of Israel. 
um, Israel lobby groups and many Washington, D.C. based think tanks that profit from war, um, like the Atlantic Council. Um, so they are not going to care about their Palestinian journalists, uh, brethren um, being targeted. But the New York Times, the so-called paper of record, their bureau in Jerusalem is actually based on a Palestinian home. And they participated in the dispossession of a Palestinian family um, to build that bu Jerusalem bureau. And that was the family of Palestinian writer Ghada Karmi, who was a survivor of the Nakba. The Times also... Um, often cooperates with Israeli officials by receiving and obeying gag orders from the Israeli government. Um, the New York Times bureau chiefs, Ethan Bronner, Isabel Kirshner, and David Brooks had their adult children enlisted in the Israeli army while they were actively covering um, Israel and Palestine for the newspaper. Um, the so-called paper of record, as we like to know it as um, has never made any of this information public to its readers, raising serious questions of bias and a conflict of interest. And the New York Times has also a history of firing journalists like Gaza-based photographer Hussam Salem following an intervention from the Israeli lobby group Honest Reporting. And the reason why I bring up the New York Times and I mention it as an example is because for so long, these so-called papers of record, these legacy media outlets, um, they push this sort of propaganda to uplift Israel as the so-called beacon of democracy in the Middle East. But it's very clear that there's a conflict of interest in the way that they're reporting this. They're actually working directly with the state of Israel. And so it's nearly impossible for Americans to get an understanding, an honest understanding of what is happening on the ground. And so... While this is true, we're also seeing a major shift in public opinion where even Democrats are now disassociating themselves with the party because they're seeing that Israel is openly on our smart screens committing genocide with our leaders like Genocide Joe, who purport to represent the interests of human rights and democracy, hand Israel the very bombs to drop on Gaza to commit these crimes. And so our eyes can't unsee what we have seen now. And so that's why we have big tech and uh, big tech working directly with the military industrial complex to crack down on this free flow of information so that um, they can continue to control the narrative. Because right now uh, I, I do see that uh, mainstream media and our establishment and the state of Israel are, are, are all working around the clock um, to figure out narrative control at this point. Well, uh, I'm one of those who believes that not until the last editor is strangled with the last copy of The Times uh, will we be truly free. Uh, we uh, have uh, the comfort, the consolation of knowing uh, that fewer and fewer people read these publications, fewer and fewer people watch these legacy uh, broadcasters, and more and more people are turning to outfits like yours and like mine. Uh, and I think that's a trend that will continue. I commend to you, if you haven't watched it yet, uh, the interview by Tucker Carlson of Russell Brand yesterday, uh, which deals with many of these issues and very eloquently uh, indeed. Now, Manar, I've, uh, I've loved uh, the work of Mint Press for a very long time, uh, but I particularly commend 
uh, your uh, work on the Yemen, uh, which has, of course, gone through a Western-sponsored uh, war and famine and is now on the receiving end directly of Western attacks. Where do we stand on that now? I mean, the, uh, the, there's so many wars going on. Uh, people can't yeah. keep up with the Red Sea War, the war against Yemen for its sanctions on Israeli shipping. Don't you think that since the ICJ judgment, uh, the Yemenis are actually the only people behaving legally in this case by trying to stop the genocide, which the ICJ identified as plausibly being underway in Gaza, which would make the attacks on Yemen themselves entirely illegal. Uh, where, where is that situation now? Well, Yemen's maritime blockade in the Red Sea of Israeli ships is uh, what every Arab country in the Middle East should have done a long time ago, but they're not. And so they're acting um, with great morality and they haven't even killed anybody. And yet the United States just labeled the Ansar Allah movement um, as a terrorist organization just this past week. And I actually just conducted an interview with the uh, Ansar Allah spokesperson, uh, Muhammad Al-Bukhaiti, to talk about this maritime blockade of Israeli ships, where one of the first ships they seized was the Galaxy uh, leadership, which is owned um, by uh, someone very close to the Israeli government. And so Yemen hasn't killed anybody, and yet they have continuously been targeted uh, through sanctions and warfare. And Midpress has been on the ground since 2015. We've covered the war in Yemen. And despite all of the hardships that Yemen has faced, whether it's Saudi Arabia's bombs and blockades or the UAE setting up torture sites with the U.S., and U.S. occupying some certain provinces in the south, and also uh, these countries working with Israel to um, to you to, um, to exchange surveillance and tech uh, technology to be used on the Yemeni people. Um, 23 million people have been starving. Despite all of this, despite Yemen being the poorest country in the Middle East, they have acted with great morality to defend Palestinians and to stop the ongoing Israeli genocide. And how did the United States reward Saudi Arabia when they were bombing Yemen? They placed them on a key humanitarian seat at the UN at that time when 23 million people were starving. And so we have to ask ourselves, why do we expect any sort of moral or ethical judgment to come from the Western leaders who are backing and supporting Israel's genocide in Gaza when U.S. and British politicians happily supported Saudi Arabia's bombing of Yemen and deliberate starvation of that population, where today they're still paying the ultimate price for that horrific war. And yet they have no you know, money in this game. They look at the plight of the Palestinians as something, as a humanitarian cause that, that they need to stand with their brethren. Um, and so today we are looking at Arab leaders in the region, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, Morocco, Jordan, and even Turkish leaders. They're crying crocodile tears for Gaza while working backhandedly behind the scenes with Israel on trade and oil deals, um, exchanging surveillance and technol uh, surveillance technology 
And they're even intercepting Ansar Allah missiles for Israel. So in the end, we have to remember what's similar about Israel's war in Gaza and the U.S.-backed Saudi and UAE war in Yemen is that all of these weapons are being that all the weapons that are being used in this crisis, both of these conflicts are coming directly from the United States. Uh, and both wars are meant to crush local organic resistance to Western imperialism and colonialism and their proxies. And, you know, it doesn't matter if a Democrat is in office or a Republican in, is in office, because we've been covering the war in Yemen and U.S. support for Israel for a very, very long time since the inception of Mitt Press. And I'm sure you've come to learn, too, that both parties support Israel's war in Gaza and both parties support a continuous war effort in Yemen to crush local resistance. Democrats are really, really good at putting a smile on imperialism, while Republicans, of course, are more blatant in their intentions. But one thing, of course, is certain, and that is that the mask has fallen and more people are seeing that both Democrats and Republicans are bloodthirsty war parties um, that only care about um, their bottom line. And both of these wars have exposed the moral depravity of the international rules-based order. The world has awoken to their hypocrisy. And more people are realizing that what Yemen is doing is actually right and what the rest of the world, Western world, and supporting Israel's war is morally wrong. Um, and so we're learning now, um, the, the, the global public is learning now, that uh, the United States is a war-hungry nation, and it's clear that it's in decline, and it has for far too long bullied the rest of the world um, into supporting these wars of aggression. But the mass population um, is, you know, is waking up. These conflicts and wars have woken, awoken a sleeping giant, and people are taking to the streets, um, they're speaking up, they're protesting, uh, they're disrupting political events, and they're making it very clear that enough is enough. Um, and that's all that, they, that, that we can do is continue to support um, anti-war voices around the world. Minal Adli, you're one of the most important of those. More power to you and to Mint Press. Everyone should follow you and follow Mint Press. Thanks for joining us on the mother of Thanks. all talk shows. Much appreciated. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Nico House needs no introduction. One of our most popular guests, political commentator and founder of MCSC Network. Nico, uh, welcome back. The madhouse that is the American political scene uh, is getting madder uh, by the day. Uh, the uh, latest uh, is that uh, Joe Biden uh, has definitely decided he's running all these tales uh, of uh, him bowing out before the convention, Gavin Newsom coming in, or Kamala taking over, have apparently been definitively ruled out by Biden. He is on the ticket. And so people have got the choice uh, between Joe Biden and Donald Trump doesn't say much for uh, American democracy, does it? Hey, George, that's not fair. Nikki Haley says she's going to stay until the election. Anything can happen. 
I'm just kidding. She's not in the way. But you're correct. <laughs> yeah, it's basically between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And um, although the American people don't really like those options overall, um, the reality is, is that I think that if all things are even, Trump is going to win, which is why I don't actually believe that the decision is actually in Joe Biden's hands. I think that he believes it's in Joe Biden's hands and he believes that there's no threat from um, the the powers that be within the Democratic Party that want an up and comer who's fresh and doesn't have as much baggage attached. I think he believes it's his choice. But in reality, I don't think that he has a choice. If they want to replace him, they will. And what are the possibilities uh, of that? It's getting late in the day, isn't it? Uh, they'd have to uh, shuffle old Joe, genocide Joe, off the end of a pier somewhere. Uh, and they'd then only have a matter of months uh, to get somebody else in and run them uh, whilst uh, Joe remained in the White House, uh, haunting them like Banquo's ghost. It's a pretty tricky <laughs> maneuver, isn't it? Actually, the later that the Democratic Party waits to replace Joe Biden, the better. And we know from history that the Democratic Party isn't above replacing you at the convention. They're not above using their superdelegates to select who they actually want to be the nominee at the convention. Now, if you dig deep enough and if you have long enough to do the research uh, and allow that research to have time to actually spread, you would find plenty of baggage about Gavin Newsom. You probably would find that the majority of his own state doesn't really like him all that much. Obviously, compared to Joe Biden, maybe people believe that he doesn't have nearly as much baggage and the loyal Democrat and the loyal liberal vote for him because they'll say, well, at least he can be Trump and at least he's better than Trump by their vantage point. But the reality is, if they select Gavin Newsom at the convention, how much opposition research could you possibly do between then and November? Because your opposition research is going to basically be based on what? Is he better than Trump? And once again, to by some people's vantage point, by the average onlooker who isn't who hasn't done a lot of research on Gavin Newsom, the later he joins, the less likely they are to find out who he actually is. Now, you mentioned Nikki Haley uh, or uh, we could give her our original name, but why bother uh, trying to <laughs> pronounce it? She's Nikki Haley now. She's white now, uh, even though yeah. uh, plainly she's of Indian uh, ethnicity, but she defines herself as white. And we live in the in the age of self-definition. Uh, uh, <laughs> is she still getting funding? Is she still a viable candidate, even though Trump has decisively beaten her? Uh, first of all, I do got to say, Nikki is literally white Kamala for the Republican Party. It's kind of hilarious the 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 um, comparison with Kamala running in 2020 and trying to ignore her Indian side and pretending she's actually ran on being black her entire life, which, which isn't true, while we're simultaneously watching Nimrata do the same thing, but for the Republican Party while pretending she's white. It's it's just hilarious. I mean, a woman literally claimed that there is no such thing as racism. So, uh, but she was never a viable candidate, George. That didn't change the fact that she was receiving a bunch of money from the Democrats and the Republican elite. So she's she's still getting the money. I believe that there is a goal, perhaps, to uh, continue to spread the message that she is putting out, which is probably more important than actually beating Donald Trump, which is pretending that 
you know, the only reason Hamas exists is because of Iran somehow continuing to finger point at Putin or saber rattle at Iran, literally saying that uh, we should assassinate Iranian leaders Soleimani style. So basically disregard international law and just commit extrajudicial killings of foreign leaders. That's that's but that's but clearly she's still polling decently well, you know, for her status. So, you know, maybe that's what they care about. And that's why they're keeping her in power, because we all know the Oval Office doesn't have as much control over the the outcome of circumstance in this country as much as the opinions people hold, which sway the Oval Office to to pretend as if they're going to pass or advocate for certain policies, especially especially when it comes to foreign policy. Now, what about Zion Don himself? Uh, He said today that imagine Three years ago, there was peace in the Middle East, which isn't, of course, true. But relatively speaking, uh, there was less war in the Middle East three years ago when he was in power uh, than there is today. What do you think he, if he was president again, would do differently? So, like you said, there is that caveat. That's relatively speaking, because we can't forget, ironically, Trump vetoed legislation uh, that was sending weapons to Saudi Arabia that they were using to bomb Yemen. Trump was just as active using the drone program, even though he didn't expand the drone program to the degree um, that Obama did in the various nations that Obama used them in. He still was taking full advantage of the drone program, even though he's come out and recently complained about it. Um, I do believe, however, because of the weird way Trump's ego works, he would not let Netanyahu get away with what he's doing right now because mm. Mm. this would make effectively Donald Trump look like a puppet of Netanyahu. Whereas before, uh, a lot of the stuff that Trump was doing in Israel and the relationship that he had maintained during his administration was like he was the advocate for Israel. But there's obviously a fine line from being an advocate to being a puppet. And what Netanyahu is demanding of all his loyalists right now um, He's demanding a loyalty to the point of being a puppet. And I don't believe that Trump would allow it. I think that he would probably just, not for the best of reasons, not for the right reasons, but he 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 knows that this type of stuff looks bad. When you, when you have, uh, I mean, he wanted to, originally he wanted to pull the CIA out of Syria. He was the one who announced he wanted to leave Afghanistan and he, you know, he had a plan to do so the right way. Joe Biden kind of mucked that up, but um, he was the one who, tried to pull out Iraq, you know, he was even complaining about Iran in the way that the U.S. had planned on handling them, saying that John Bolton wanted to use uh, the the Libya model, right? So this is the opposite of what we're getting from Joe Biden right now. And I believe that with Joe Biden being so open to just basically going to war with everybody, which is what it seems like at the moment, then how can there ever be any peace? People are ramping up. What we're seeing, that I don't believe that that attack was legitimately... Uh, from Iran, but also, could we be surprised? Should we be surprised? The U.S. has been threatening Iran pretty consistently for the last year. And, and, and you look at what we're doing in the region, they have every reason to want to be skeptical and defend themselves. I mean, based off of what Trump and his administration and the U.S. government said, you know, if you feel a threat of an imminent attack from your enemies, you can kill who you want to. That's what they said about Soleimani. So would Iran really be wrong for being proactive? Probably not.
the vice president's position uh, for Trump, there's a rumor that uh, he's talking with or seeking to talk with uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, that would be problematic, I think, uh, in a number of respects, but it would also be unbeatable at the polls, I think. Is there any legs to that story? Uh, I don't know. I think that RFK Jr. would probably be open to it. I've heard that he's been open to potentially partnering with Tulsi because he's polling so well. Um, and to be honest, surprisingly so, because his pro-Israel stance should have probably killed him in the polls. And it's killing Biden somehow, but it's not actually killing JFK or excuse me, RFK Jr. So being able to actually combine because RFK Jr. is better on a lot of foreign policy issues that, that, than Trump. And he's definitely better when it comes to issues that a lot of people have took issue with with Donald Trump, which is his advocacy for Operation Warp Speed, for example. He's better on those issues. And he uh, is honestly probably better in the black community. I mean, RFK Jr. is actually extremely popular uh, amongst black ac- academics, uh, people who are on the ground. Uh, the, the he's he's very popular popular amongst black celebrities in a, in a similar way that Trump is. Uh, and at the end of the day, you can't go wrong with the Kennedy on your side because that name recognition will take you farther uh, than policy ever could, to be honest with you. Fascinating. Nico, I wish we had more time. I'm deeply grateful to you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows, one of our most popular guests. Thanks for being with us. NWM SFP says, George Gatry. Please share the free Manroor Shuman. He's the brave Canadian-Palestinian journalist and his cameraman that disappeared. My guess is these brave, gentle people were kidnapped by the Israel occupation force. And Jorge Vidal says Minar Adli should be the ruler of the Arab world. And Vijay says they'll stick any charge on Imran Khan so as to eliminate him from the political scene. And Ernest, mostly, says free Pakistan from U.S. control, free Imran Khan. Now, as I said, next Wednesday, there's a time change, 7 p.m. UK time, just as on Sunday, I'll be back, God willing, with the mother of all talk shows. Thanks for joining me, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. Thanks to the 25,000 people who voted in the poll. And thanks to my patrons, most of all, without whom I wouldn't be able to continue doing this job. Much obliged to you. Good night.